I'm excited to share my conversation with Jimmy Sony, the author of the incredible book, The Founders. In this episode, we're going to discuss the power of the people around you, Brad Stone's influence on Jimmy's writing process, the value of network effects in PayPal's business model, Teal's developing thoughts around competition, Elon Musk's skin in the game, and the tumultuous culture of PayPal post-merger. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, technology, or simply drama-ridden stories set in the dot-com bust era, I think you'll love his book. So let's jump right into the episode. So welcome, welcome, Jimmy, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Jimmy is the author of the book, The Founders, The Story of PayPal. Amazing book. I loved it myself. And anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship, I think, should go buy the book, read it, and check it out. So I'm so grateful to have you here, Jimmy. Well, Josh, thank you for having me. And thanks for the enthusiastic endorsement. Yeah, so I want to start off, I think it would be interesting to start with a quote that you gave to your daughter at the end of the book in the acknowledgements, I was personally touched by it. And I'd like to ask kind of a follow-up to that. You said, your life will be shaped by the things you create and the people you make them with. We tend to sweat the former. We don't worry enough about the latter. The story of PayPal isn't just about people banding together to shape a product. It's about how banding together shape the people themselves. I think that is really powerful, just for one. And also, I'm curious from you, you've studied the PayPal entrepreneurs. I know you wrote another book on Claude Shannon that I'm excited to read. So across these different entrepreneurs, smart individuals, how do you think about people going out and finding those right co-founders or just partners in their lives? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And I'm, I, I, I hasten to add, like, I'm not sure I have a prescription, right? I kind of of raised the importance of it for my daughter, but I'm not like, like, I don't know that I have, you know, I gave her a little bit of advice after that paragraph, but I didn't, I don't know that I have like a hundred percent. Here's the answer. Um, But, but here's, I'll, I'll sort of answer one, one thought is this, which is the reason I wrote that is because I noticed how much of an effect all of the people who worked at PayPal had on one another. And so, for example, here's like an illustrative example is how much of an effect Peter Thiel had on Max Lebchin and his thinking, or how much of an effect David Sachs had on his engineering engineering colleagues, right? And so I had this kind of vision in my head where like we tend to tell the stories of companies usually as like one person, you know, and through and through. Like it's like Jobs, Apple, et cetera. And I had this idea that like, actually, like what I've learned in the different jobs I've been in or places I've worked or whatever is I, you sort of get affected by all of the people who are around you. And I just saw that on page after page when I was working on the founders and the PayPal story. And so, I, you know, you asked a question about like, what advice would you give? I think one of the things that I would, would look for, let's say you're going to join a company, right? Like you'd interview with your boss, you'd probably look at the company's financials, but you also probably want to find a way to interview or connect with all of the people who are going to, you're actually going to be interfacing with day to day, whether that's like five people or 10 people, because what's going to happen is the cumulative total of the time you spend with them is going to like actually affect who you are and what you become. And that's a little bit of a weird thing. It's like, it's like totally normal to think like, what's my comp going to be? Or like, how much equity am I going to get? Or what's my bonus going to be? It's a little different to think, okay, like what is spending years of my life around these people going to do for who I am, right? And by the way, just to be clear, nobody joined PayPal with that sort of thought process in mind. I'm able to say that from the distance of hindsight, but to me, it was one of the most interesting lessons that I took from the book was just what a powerful impact your work peer group has on you. Not your boss necessarily, but your actual, the people that you are like cubicle to cubicle with who you joke around with, who you laugh with, who you share funny moments with, who you share heartbreaking moments with. Like one of the examples I can give you is, you know, this entire team lived through September 11th together. And I had about a half a dozen people describe very specific interactions they had with their colleagues on that day 
that you know they didn't have with family and friends. And so part of my kind of like like message in a bottle to my daughter at the very end of the book was just think hard, not just about like, what am I going to work on and how much am I going to get paid? But think a lot about like, who are the people who are around me and what kind of effect will they have on my life? I think the, the second part of the answer to this is probably the place where we have the most control over that, but where we maybe don't exercise that control is in friendships. And like fundamentally the story of, of call it like the PayPal mafia or like all, is a story of friendship. Like it's a story of people who became friends and worked together and went on to do all of these things. And the writing up process in the book made me think a lot about like, are my friends the kinds of people who will challenge me to, you know, go do big things and then help me along the way. And I think that's like a, I mean, sometimes we fall, like when we're younger, we fall into our friendships. It's just like, you know, whoever your neighbor is and whoever your person in your dorm next to you is, right? But then as you get older, you know, we have the opportunity actually to like select for friends who are going to make us different people. And I think that's a pretty good exercise. Like, it's like what I learned, it's one of the key lessons from the book is, you know, being in a room with these people had a powerful effect on everyone who worked there. Um, Sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but it's worth thinking about that as, you know, you're progressing through your career. Right, right. I think it's, one of those classic wisdom quotes, like you are the average of your five closest peers. And we see it through and through across life, especially if you're spending 40, 50, in PayPal's case, I feel like it was almost 80 hours together (laughs) every week. I mean, grinding out the competitive online payments landscape. And I I think, by the way, the other part of it is the, the other lesson I took that's connected to that is not just the kind of idea that at least like the, the idea that we're affected by people. It's also that the, the second part of my kind of advice to my daughter was it's very hard to find people who can kind of improve you as a person and still stay your friend, right? So right. who could like call you out when, you know, like I have great friends who will call me out when I'm being an idiot. And I am very glad that they are my friends because I know that they have this kind of love for me and that we have this friendship but they are also simultaneously able to say, you're being really stupid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're you need to be total moron. And, and I think there's a difference between the friends who make us just generically feel good and mm-hmm. then the friends who actually like inspire us to do better things in the world, right? And one of the people that I, like I would sort of like, you know, among other people, but one of the people that I saw this uh, happen with it within the context of the book is, is David Sachs, where like David you know, he, he's so, he makes the people around him perform better and they don't always like it. And he's not, he's not going to win Miss Congeniality, but I think like how many of our friends, you know, are comfortable enough with us to call us out. And that was like something I thought about a lot when I was writing this book, because I just saw it over and over again. They didn't, these people didn't all get along. It wasn't like they all had PayPal mafia jackets and they all hung out and just (laughs) celebrated one another's wins. It was really hard work. And a lot of times you have to go you know, you have to raise your voice, you have to shout at each other, you have to argue. And they didn't see that as inconsistent with remaining friends. It was like one of these very specific kind of cultures and I wanted to capture that on paper. Right, right. And as you were drawing out these stories, as you're interviewing these founders, entrepreneurs throughout the five years of your research, how do you think about drawing out a lot of those lessons between them, those interpersonal dynamics and then weaving it into kind of this very comprehensive story telling the first account of PayPal's four years, founding years. How do you go about that? And maybe even what are the most interesting stories, surprising stories that you uncovered in this process? Yeah, it's a great, like, I mean, we could do the entire podcast just on this question, I think. Uh, So maybe I'll, I'll like go a little bit of depth here. You know, it's a really big question, but sort of I'll answer it in pieces. The, the first piece is I was writing what is effectively the biography of a company uh, called PayPal. And what I was focused on were, let's say, like if it's a like its infancy, like years zero through four and a half. Like, so what is what is this, what is this, you know, company PayPal when it's born? And then what is it like when it's a four and a half year old? Like for its its toddler years, right? And I, I kind of kept that very tight frame. So it wasn't like, oh, here's an exhaustive history of the PayPal mafia and everything they've done, right? It wasn't, oh, here's like a story about Elon Musk that nobody knows. It wasn't, oh, let me tell you PayPal's 20 year history. It was PayPal from 1998 
to a sort of the end of 2002, four and a half years. Let's like keep the story relatively kind of tight in those in the in that time frame. And within that, what I had was just like the you know the most larger than life characters anybody could hope for when they're writing a book like this. Like you know, multiple people who are like trying to change the world in their own way. Reed Hoffman, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, David Sachs, Ken Howard, all these people, right? And hundreds of them. And I also had a setting that made a lot of sense as, as a source of, dram- of drama, <laughs> right? Which is the dot-com bubble bursting and Palo Alto yep. in like 1999, 2000, 2001 is both like this place of like huge ambitions and excitement. And it's also this place of like soul crushing defeats and like- like companies going under and people losing millions of dollars, right? And so you have this kind of you have the the perfect the perfect stage to learn something, and and so it's kind of like one way I thought about it. The second thing I did, you know, in terms of just kind of how do you how do you take all this and work through what's what's interesting and what's not, is you know I had this challenge of like people's memories are really bad. You know, like even if like if you're if you're if I were to ask you like about a meal you had last week, it is unlikely that you would remember every detail of the meal, right? This is like what makes like, I don't know, being like a police detective so hard is like people's memories are fallible. You don't know what you're going to remember or not remember. So one of the things that happened that there's sort of two tracks I took to deal with that. The first is I went into like what are like kind of these big archives of old newspaper stories, articles, etc. And I just printed out every single reference to any of the companies that were affiliated with PayPal or the name PayPal for like a six year period. And I, I mean, this was like hundreds of pages of paper. And the idea was like, okay, you have to get as close to the action as you can. The second thing that happened is that someone shared with me, like they had held on for some reason to this massive archive of emails, uh, like gigabytes worth of emails from their time there. And so I had a day by day accounting of how the company came to be. If people read the book, they'll notice that like I always cite from this newsletter. It's called the Weekly Pal. Right. And it was I was like going to say, how did you get yeah. your hands on it? Was the, all that was in that, it was in that archive, and I still remember it. I like got this archive, and then it was like in this old Outlook format, like a super old, like nineteen, you know, like right. early two thousand dollar format. So I had to download this weird software to like convert the file into something else, right? Oh wow! And so I did that, and then and all of a sudden this thing pops up on screen, and it's like hundred uh, hundreds of thousands of emails over that time period where I could see everything that happened. So I did not have to depend on memory. It was, people ask me, they're like, you know, wasn't it cool to interview, you know, let's, I don't know, Elon. Yes, it was. What was also cool was seeing the notes that Elon sent to his colleagues in those years so that I could go back and think about those and see the truth of how things operated And then compare it to like, you know, what are some of the lessons that he might have learned, right? And so part of this was like a balancing act of like, let's get as close to the action in 1998 to 2002 as I can. And then the third sort of broad answer to your question, like, how do you do this is I had two or three books that really like were models for me. And I I like obsessed over them in this very specific way so that I could understand like, what is it like to do a book like this? So one model was this book called The Everything Store, which is about um, the creation story of Amazon. So really, really good book. I mean, it's like really ridiculously good. Um, And I set that as like a model for myself where I was like, you know, what I'm trying to do is write The Everything Store, but for PayPal. And the Mm -hmm. reason I like The Everything Store is because it's a mix of the elements of the ingredients that I wanted. One of those ingredients is you really do get a sense of who Jeff Bezos is as a person, right? The other is you learn how the business evolved. Like how did it go from books to CDs to run to selling everything? And then the third is it's readable. Like you can get through it and it's fun to read. It's interesting to read. There, There's humor embedded in it. There's like, like, it's like actually an enjoyable, engaging experience to read it. It doesn't feel like you're doing homework. And I kind of had the same ambition for myself. I said, one, I want to make sure that like readers and busy people, like when they read this, they're like, wow, this was like super fun to read. And he's kind of funny at different points, right? The second was, will you get a vantage point into how these people who today lead Silicon Valley, how do they think, right? And then the third is, what is the actual nuts and bolts of like building a payment business from scratch? Like what, what does that mean? How do you deal with it? And I tried to balance it in the same way that the Everything Store did. And so that like helped me because what I would do every day is instead of starting with PayPal, I would just reread and reread and reread the Everything Store. I like read it an embarrassing number of times, Josh, like an embarrassing. Interesting. That's very interesting. Um, 
But part of what happens, and this is what I tell kind of aspiring writers and other people is it mm. taught me what questions to ask. So people are like, oh, how did you know to like go so deep into the PayPal name? Like, why that? Why did you like do like four pages on that? And I said, because Brad Stone in the Everything Store did this whole long riff on the Amazon name. Because Amazon's not like the most intuitive name for a tech company, right? right? And so I had to go back and like understand like, what did he do? How did he write that? All of that stuff. And then I just thought to myself, like, okay, let me ask those questions. And then I'll find a way to like do that for what I'm trying to do. And that's kind of how I... um that's a, a broad sort of um, 10,000, probably be generous, like a 30,000 foot look at how do you take this story and all of this information and bring it to life. Right. And I think you mentioned how you're able to interview the people directly. I'm sure that helps give another view into their characters. I'm not sure if Brad Stone had that ability with the everything store, because if I remember correctly, I think the Amazon executives trashed the book on the Amazon reviews. Well, yeah, That's so, just my memory. I don't know. And, I, and I, I might remember this wrong as well. Here's how I understand that it all kind of happened. So he had yeah. access to Bezos at the beginning. Okay. And my understanding is that there's a point like three quarters of the way in the book where Brad discovers Jeff Bezos's biological father and then like, mm-hmm. like makes an introduction. Something happened with that whole sequence. And it, it meant that like that Bezos tried to cut off the access then. And his his wife at the time wrote a negative Amazon review about the book on on Amazon, you know, Meta. Um, right. <laughs> um, but but the book is so well researched that everybody else sort of recognized, like, look, you're never going to get these books 100 percent right, but this is pretty yeah. close to the truth. And so I think that's the sequence of how things happened. But I would defend Brad in his architecture of that story right. um, and that version of it, because uh, it was, it was really like rigorously researched. He had spent a long time reporting on Amazon. So he's sort of seen its rise and development. Mm-hmm. And my sense is like, he got as close as anybody's ever going to get. Yeah. I, I thought the everything store is unbelievable as well. One of the ways that I closed off the PayPal podcast, the one that we just released was ending with kind of asking you the question after studying for five years, what was in the water at PayPal? And I think that's something that people joke about. I think you even wrote it in the book yourself. But truly, what do you think fosters these certain breeding grounds of innovation, like we saw at PayPal, Pixar's brain trust with animation, even University of Illinois' Urbana-Champaign? I think a lot of people said they joined when Andreessen was starting Mosaic because he was leading the browser yeah. revolution. So in your studies, what do you think is fostering these breeding grounds of innovation where people are coming together and they're able to work so well in this tight-knit team? Yeah. And I, I think I have, as I've thought about the question, what's interesting is I think I'm going to continue to think about and refine my own answer to the question, right? Because yeah. if you look at the number of companies that came out of this alumni group, whether it's Yelp or YouTube, LinkedIn, SpaceX, Tesla, Palantir, the list goes on. Yeah. Like there's just so much impact that I, I think like the answer gets better over time. Like, um, but but I, you know, and again, my answer is is going to be imprecise because it's we're 20 years removed. And I'm like, I'm able to take a wide angle lens to the story. So I, like, again, there's sort of disclaimers that need to be attached. And what, what I mean to say is like, it's not chemistry, it's alchemy. Meaning like, it's not like, oh, add a dash of this, add a dash of this, add a right. dash of this, and you get PayPal, right? There's no or formula. Can, yeah, this incubator for companies. I think it's more like, I'd, I'd offer a couple observations. The first is this, the success of the company taught the people who worked there that these kinds of companies could be successful, which, which sounds a little roundabout, except that it's not, because in 2000 and 2001, there were plenty of other companies with the name.com attached that failed miserably. And a lot of those people might have learned the lesson like, oh, this, this .com thing, this internet thing is just not ever going to work, right? But that's not true. We know that's not true. What happened for the people who were a part of this group is they saw a vision of possibility. Like, Hey, you can do this. You can create a company from scratch. It can go through some real ups and downs, but you can be successful with this. This is like a useful, possible way to spend your life. And it's kind of like they had a model for success in their head, right? Like you could, if you, and sometimes that's all people need. All people need on occasion is just like a model of someone else who did something that they want to do, right? Like 
like your friend runs a marathon and you're sort of like looking at your friend, like you're like, I can do that, you know? And you kind of like, oh, okay. In the same way, if you've now had a successful company and a successful exit, you, you kind of have this like, wait, this, we can do this. I know how to do this. Right. And by the way, that's not my opinion. That idea was played back to me by people who worked there. There was this Mm -hmm. wonderful person I interviewed. Her name was Amy Clement. And she said this, she said, if our motley crew of people could do this, then why not us? Like, why not us in all these other places, you know? So that's kind of one thing. The second is at a time when there wasn't ca- a ton of capital available to invest in the next generation of webs, web companies, these people had a little bit of capital. We're not talking like the kinds of uh, funds they have access to now, more like they could write, you know, Peter Thiel could write a $500,000 check to a kid named Mark Zuckerberg, right? To help him grow this thing called the Facebook. And that was possible for them. And they were willing to take the risk and the chance. And that wasn't true for everybody. The, the, the dot-com bubble, and people, if we forget it now, but like the NASDAQ lost 86% of its value in the year 2000, right? I mean, billions of market cap disappear overnight. You have Super Bowl ads in January and these businesses right. are shuttered by the, by, by the winter. And so the available capital for internet companies in America had gone down considerably because all these people felt like, well, I got burned on this the last time. I'm not going to do this again. Right. And so the fact that you have all these people who have a little bit of capital to seed businesses. So for example, Yelp is started is co-founded by two people, Jeremy Stoppelman and Russ Simmons. They are both PayPal alumni. The first tranche of money they get for outside money is from Max Levchin, right? Who is their like CTO at PayPal. And so you have this, this sort of um, group that has a little bit of capital that can power these businesses. I would say right. another thing that happened is a number of people came out of PayPal at the right moment in their careers where they weren't going to be employees at eBay, the company that acquired them forever, right? Like they wanted to leave and they had energy and they had ambition and they wanted to go do other things. And they kind of like in the career wise, they're like emerged and they've had a success and they maybe have a little bit of capital or access to it through friends. And they're like, I can go do this again. And so there was a timing element to it too. And then the last thing I would say is um, they had a network that I mean, some of these people are some of the smartest people I have ever met in my life, right? Um, right. And you, when you have that kind of like it, and it's not smarts in identical ways. It's not like they're all like, oh, they can write the best code in the world. That's not it. It's it's a different sort of mix of intelligence. But what I heard time and again was from the alumni is, look, if if I wanted an answer to a question or I wanted to like explore an idea, I could text or like send an email to a friend from PayPal who might have an answer to my question, right? And and that was true in recruiting. That was true in you know engineering. It was true in product. It was true in everything. And so the idea of like, wow, I have access to somebody who could help me think through this thing, which by the way, they still do to this day. What's amazing, I still remember this. This is a story I, I actually just forgot. I forgot until now. I was interviewing Luke Nosick, who was a very early PayPal person. He was one of the co-founders of the company. And we had this phenomenal interview and he's he's just, he's wonderful. He's really like, he he, he can riff on any topic at great length. And so I just, we, we were riffing. Yeah. And I would say like three hours or something into our discussion, something like that. He gets a phone call and and he goes, oh, it's Ken Howard. And he's like, I have to take this in the other room, but how funny is it that I, you're talking to me about PayPal and right. this guy who I met from those days just called me and we're talking about some new business thing we're gonna do together. And so he goes into the other room with that phone call but I just remembered that that happened, that even as I was interviewing them, the people who were calling them to work together on God knows what, I have no idea what they talked about. And right. I didn't ask. But the the fact that that phone call happened right then and that it wasn't some out of the blue thing, that actually like this was a consistent part of their lives, mm-hmm. that to me was actually like really interesting. And I think that's the last, one of the last components of you asked the question, like what was in the water? Well, the fact that everybody else around you who's drinking that water is like this is is actually part of the part of the story of later successes for this group. Yeah, they're all looking for that next innovation and I really like your idea of removing the limiting belief because I think as human beings we we all have these limiting beliefs in both obviously business, career and also just in our personal lives seeing that the people around you or social creatures seeing people around you escape that limiting belief or reach that sale, get out of the dot-com bus, it probably led to a lot of the other entrepreneurs believing that they could do the same thing. Well, I think, you know, there's, it's interesting you say that. It made me think of this line that is in the book. This, this, there's this one engineer, his name is David Gausebeck. And David 
I mean, among other claims to fame, he's one of the co-inventors of the CAPTCHA. So right. we can, you know, we can all thank him for having, uh, for when we have to like find a fire hydrant or whatever. But along with Max Levchin, he was the co-inventor of, of one of the applications of that technology. Um, David said to me, you know, what, what PayPal taught me is keeping high standards on my team. And he said, it's, it was like the place that I saw what happened when you just had like really, really talented people and everybody was really talented and everybody kept themselves to a high standard. He said, you know, that's my expectation. There was That was the line. He said, my expectation for my teams now is that everyone will be like that. And that's like quite a way to right. like live in the world. You know, like it's just like, that's like, that's something. It, it's sort of like saying like, oh, like every basketball player I play with is going to be Michael Jordan, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> we would be so like, lucky. Yeah, we should be so lucky. Exactly. So I wanted to cover some of the key lessons, draw out some of the key lessons and hear your thoughts on the importance, some of the story importance to PayPal. One of the key concepts I saw repeatedly was network effects. I know Bill Harris spoke about this when he pushed for the merger. And in addition, just the payment space, it's kind of this volume-driven network effect business. Can you share some times when either you're interviewing or just understanding the background of PayPal, why these network effects were so important to the story of PayPal. And in this modern day, we see it in many other areas, like eBay itself had a big network effect, social networks, but especially the payments landscape. Yeah, it's it's one of, if you were to point to kind of one of the reasons why PayPal succeeded where so many others failed, it's because they understood this idea of network effects through and through. And, you know, at its most basic level, like the the term, I think, originated from when telephones were first introduced, right? right. And so if you like, really like time machine back to like the early 20th century, right? You know, if you buy a phone and nobody can use the phone, like if nobody to call, right. it's like really Worthless. weird to have a phone then. Like if, if, if you have a phone and there's only like one other person on the planet with a phone, like it's like a walkie talkie, like there's no value in it, yeah, right? They better be your best friends. Yeah, but what happens is as the telephone network grows, the value for each person joining the network has gone up a lot because now instead of just being able to call Josh, I can call Josh and 10 other people. And maybe a month from now, it's Josh, 10 other people and 100 other people, right? And so that's network that's in a very basic way, uh, right. that's that's network effects. And payment systems have a very similar challenge. If I invented a new currency, Let's call my currency, I'm looking at my microphone. So like, let's call my currency microphone. And I said, Josh, I'm going to send you one microphone. And you're like, yeah, but like, I can't use it anywhere. You know, same problem. Like it has no value because no one else accepts it or uses it. During the early and mid nineties, there were a bunch of experiments done with payments. And all these people tried to design like new payment systems. Like they were called beans and flues. And what, one of the reasons those things failed is because they they failed to kind of fully capture this idea of network effects. Like, how do we grow the network so that each additional user gets an enormous amount of value out of being part of the network itself, right? PayPal cracks this code and it affects the company kind of throughout its entire like life cycle in these early years. But it's one of the keys to its success because they realized how much scale mattered. That if you get to enough scale, then people are getting so much value out of joining the network that it just becomes like a default action, right? And mm -hmm. that was one of the things that motivated you described a merger, just for listeners who may not have like read the book, like PayPal, as we know it, is the merger of two companies. There was this company called Confinity that was created by Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. And there was this company called X.com that was created by Elon Musk. When these two companies merge, the number one and number two players at that moment in digital payments join up. And basically what it does is it like locks out the rest of the market because the network effects become significant at that point, right? At some point, if you're on uh, where they take off is this, well, people know it. It's an auction website called eBay. At some point, if you're not on PayPal, you can't actually like use eBay the way everybody else can, especially you're losing if you're sales. Yeah, you're losing sales. And that's that was the power of network effects. And it was one of the things I really dove into in the kind of the, the, the meat of the book is understanding like, how do you, how do they understand this? Where did they learn it? How did they think about the math? All of that. But it's a big part of, they were, you know, one of the things I like in looking at all these emails, they would send daily updates about how much, how many users joined, what the transaction volume was just to un, like, just to make sure like, are we growing the overall network? Because if we grow the overall network, there's an opportunity to turn this into something so powerful that people can't ignore it. And I know 
from the from the book, from the history that you laid out, the first idea, at least for Confinity on the Confinity side, was more the beaming money idea, phone to phone beaming money, which yeah. ironically seems like turned into Venmo eventually. It is, yeah, it is Venmo, Venmo, which is owned by PayPal. So it right. came full circle. But how important do you think that switch? I think it was David Sachs who was pushing for it, but that switch to the email transfer payment system helped boost this network effect and that flywheel that got them going. I mean, it was without it, there's no PayPal today and you and I are not having this conversation, right? right. Um, because what they had, just to give kind of a little bit of background and context, Confinity, the company that was started by Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, among others, their focus was on beaming money between Palm Pilots. And it was a nifty technology, but it had a ceiling, which is the total number of Palm Pilot users, which was pretty low. Right. And then it's sort of like within that subset, you have to ask yourself like, well, if you're a Palm Pilot user, why would you use this technology as opposed to just giving somebody $5 or $10 or some other system, right? And what really blows the, the product, kind of what, what, what really lights the spark for the PayPal product is the shift over to emailing money, which nobody had really gotten right. There were a couple of experiments and things happening, but it was partly the focus of, among others, David Sachs, where they recognized, look, look, there's so many people with email now who didn't have email before. If we can get emailing money right, we get to surf that wave. We don't get to surf the Palm Pilot wave, which is gonna, gonna you know, crash at some point. But email is a real way that people communicate. It's sort of becoming a universal mechanism for communication. And if we can get the money part of email right, that's a that's a killer killer app. Is like they 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 would say is that's a killer app, and right. that's where they focus their time and energy. And it is the reason that PayPal was successful. Is none of none of the other things actually really like mattered once emailing money took off. Right. I think you even phrased it in the book like riding a wave of surging adoption. I mean, back then, I'm sure everyone was getting on email. Well, and it was, it was also, you know, it was, um, let's put, let me put it to you this way. It was, email was becoming commonplace and it wasn't like scary or weird technology. It wasn't quirky. You didn't need to be a nerd to be on email, right? Like it wasn't like some really specific thing where you're like, oh, I, I do this thing called email, right? It was like, oh, I have an email address now, right? And that wasn't true in 1990. And like today we take it for granted, but like email mm-hmm. was new at that time. Not everyone had an email address, but that adoption had gone up so much. And it was sort of like, I, I wrote this in the book that it, like the best cultural representation was this movie, You've Got Mail with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, right, right. where like their whole romance evolves over email, right? The it was like the first time we'd seen like, that. yeah, where we'd seen like this romance evolve over email. And that, that represented a moment where, okay, people know what this is. They have this in their homes. They understand how to use it on their personal computers. That's the wave that PayPal ended up riding to success. Right. It gets to the consumer adoption level. Yeah. So I think Peter Thiel's talk, Competition is for Losers, is one of the best business talks ever given. I personally just think it's such a powerful framework. And you speak about how in his earlier years as an investor, before starting Confinity, he invests in Luke Nosek's company, Smart Calendar. It ends up competing with 200 other Smart Calendar products and quickly fails. And in that, he learns this powerful lesson of the perils of competition. How do you think some of those lessons manifested itself both at PayPal and then after seeing his success throughout his career after PayPal, how do you think he's maybe carried on some of those lessons in his founder's fund or other roles as an investor? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're connecting the threads that um, that were, that I, I kind of had to learn for the first time, right? Or like sort of make, make real for myself. Um, and what I would say is, it, it, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on. Like the, the, one of the things that becomes very clear is that, Peter sees competition differently from many other people who are in business. And that at PayPal and in this story, it's most visible when he recognizes very early on that competing against this guy named Elon Musk is like not a good business strategy. <laughs> right. and, and 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 not not just because he's intense and hard charging and wants to win, but because right. fundamentally that what he saw is look, we're just gonna 
they have more capital than we do, meaning yeah. they being, let me give context, they, they being X.com and Elon's company have more capital than we do. And Elon clearly is like willing to go to ground. Like he's willing to like, you know, Risk go to it all. And he said, so we're not going to survive if we go toe to toe with them. It's just not going to happen, right? We mm-hmm. might eke out a few more months, but we're going to spend each other into oblivion. And also we're going to lose capital like in a race we can't win and then, you know, he's going to overtake us. So like, why don't we just join forces? Like, this doesn't make any sense, right? And meaning the competition doesn't make any sense. And I think there have been multiple, I imagine that that Peter's ideas about competition come from a number of case studies, meaning it's not just one data point in his head that drives some of the right. broader thinking that there's like a million data points, let's say, right? Yeah. And my bet is that among the most powerful arguments against competition was the competition that his company, Confinity, faced from you know this site X.com, and what he saw there is competition in the wrong in the wrong formats can be ruinous. It can be ruinously expensive. It can be soul sucking. It can drain all the energy out of a team. And I'm not sure that's true in every case. Like I think you know, and I don't I don't I think in zero to one he argues that it's not true in every case. But I think what he did in that book, and it's in, in that book in particular, is worth reading is he reframes competition as not always positive. Like it's not always a good thing to be competitive. Now, at the same time, in different moments in my story, he's hugely competitive. <laughs> right, right. He's, he's not going to lay down on the tracks for, no, and for he, anyone. He, he was, we had this funny interaction kind of toward the end of my interviewing. You know, he had said, he like, he like had this moment where he was, where I was asking why he took the company public after 9-11. And he said, look, if I'm honest, one of the reasons is I was really competitive and Wall Street didn't think very highly of us. They right. didn't know how to understand our business. And I wanted to prove them wrong. And, and he even says, he's like, is it healthy? He's like, it doesn't always, this isn't always healthy, but this is the honest truth of like one of the reasons why I really wanted to like one up Wall Street. Um, so it's not that he's not a competitive person. It is that business competition needs to be thought through more thoroughly. And I think that the X.com Confinity experience shows him like, look, you can be in competition with somebody and just have it be, you know, have it be counterproductive. And the companies joining is a big part of the reason why they succeed. Right. It seems like some of his thoughts can go to the end of it creates a race to the bottom. And then sometimes there's obviously businesses that it's an oligopoly. You're comfortable with competition with two other players in a stable race. Yeah. And I and I will say also like what I what I tried to do was not in a, and I think you know, hopefully readers appreciate this like you know you can read his book zero to one but zero to one was written several years after PayPal yeah so what I actually like in some ways I like tried not to quote too much from the right. later kind of thinking and writing and I tried to like zoom back to be like well what did, you know what did he see in that moment and what he saw in that moment wasn't a grand theory about competition what he saw in that moment was this guy, Elon, right. clearly wants to win and has way more capital to win and is not going to stop until he wins. And like the, the the that competition is not productive for Confinity. And so he, among others, pushes his uh, board uh, and his team to accept a, a merger. And it's a complicated process to get to the merger. But mm-hmm. I just want to be clear, like, it's not like he sort of sits back and says, well, what is the, you know, how do I think about how it was more like, Look, the math just doesn't work here. Like we're going to look going on here. Right? Um, but I think I think ultimately that data point and others lead to some of these other things that he's well known for now. Right. And I want to lean into the Musk side a little further. Obviously, he's many people's favorite or most hated character. Um, I think what really amazes me most about Musk, and you write this at length, he's obviously one of the main characters behind X.com, but it seems like he's willing to take these massive risks even when he's in a very comfortable financial position. Mm-hmm. After Zip2, I think he had a $21 million payday and then basically turns around, invests it all into X.com. I think when PayPal sold, he did the same thing with Tesla and SpaceX, probably much more improbable types of initiatives. So I'm wondering from you, obviously there's that competitive side also, from the skin in the game side, how do you think his literal skin in the game, putting his money where his mouth is, affected the people on his team and made them such a competitive team to Confinity? Yeah. 
Um, it's a great observation because it's something that a lot of people miss. Like, yeah. So I'll answer your question in a narrow way, and then we can kind of broaden the aperture a bit. I had members of his X.com team, the early engineers, say to me, you know, you when when we would call to recruit people and we would tell them the amount of money that Elon had put into the company, they were blown away. Like it became right. advantageous for recruiting to talk about how much skin he had in the game. Yeah. And, and so that just shows you like that's not my assessment. That is somebody who's on his team telling a future engineer like, oh, the CEO has like all his money in this company, right? And it was true. Uh, he had a huge amount of his personal capital invested in X.com and believed in it. He takes some of that off the table later when subsequent investors get involved. But it's a big part of the formation period of X.com is him being able to put his own capital in and just get going and get started right away. Um, I would say that more broadly, you know, there was this um, a line I didn't include in the book is I was interviewing Reed Hoffman and he said, you know, if Peter and I, Peter, it's like Peter and I have obviously like reflected on our PayPal experience. And he said, and we always joked that if we were ever going to write the book about PayPal, we would call the chapter about Elon, the man who knew no fear, something yeah. to that effect. Like, and, and, and it is this kind of interesting thing to hear that from somebody who himself is like a distinguished entrepreneur with a track record of success. Yeah. Because even among this group, the level of risk that Elon is willing to take with his personal capital is significant and noteworthy. And I think it's, you know, you can have opinions, as many opinions about him as the day is long, but it does say something about somebody's personal commitment that they would take almost their entire net worth right. and stake it on a company. And I think that there's something about that. Um, there was this engineer, Doug Mack. He said, you know, I knew, this is a, almost a direct quote. He said, I knew that if Elon said he was going to make this successful, he was going to do it and he would do anything to make it successful. And I think that's true. And like, there's, you can't, you kind of can't deny it partly because the facts are there, like the amount of capital and the observations of the people that he hired, like they're, they're, they actually saw that play out directly. Right. Right. And as these two competitive forces, it seems like they both reach that realization that it makes more sense. There's the network effect playing into it. Volume wins in the payments business as they started seeking out the merger and then completed the merger, there was some tumultuous times after. Some there were a lot, started, a lot of, tumu a lot a of lot tumultuous, tumultuous times. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away because I want people right. to read the book as well. But how do you think the culture survived the merger itself, the combining of two very different cultures? There's that culture clash. And a couple coups afterwards where there's this public vote of no confidence for the chief executive. Yeah. Well, you know, so there's this line in the book from Luke Nosek and he says, because uh, I asked kind of, you know, we were talking about the merger and he said, you know, we all learned a valuable lesson about mergers. A merger is the joining of two companies, but it's also hiring 50 people sight unseen, right? Right. And so you have <laughs> these two companies that have very different ambitions. They have very different styles. They have really intense leaders and you put them all in a room together and the bottom falls out of the on the internet economy. Like, what do we think is going to happen, right? And and I provide that context because I think that sometimes we what we do with these stories is we say, oh, like this person was right and this person was wrong, but you kind of ignore the context. This was a merger that from start to finish took under three months to complete. Mergers take like years sometimes, right? Yeah. And you have these two internet companies at a time when the bottom is going to drop out of the market deciding that they're going to join forces just weeks after they have decided they're going to kill each other. And so right. can you, like, that's not, I called it in the book, a shotgun wedding. That's exactly what it was. Right. All these people who up to this point had been so skeptical of each other. There's a, there's a moment that I recount where Max Levchin in an interview says, you know, I used to tell people like, be careful when you're walking over by X.com's office, the walls have ears, right? Like that's the level of paranoia. And then to go from that to one big happy family, I mean, that's a chasm, right? And right. so the idea of there being drama is not that surprising given that context. Now the drama takes different forms, but to me, it's it's actually like, if there wasn't drama, it would be really weird. Like if you and I were locked in like a, a fight to the death competition, and then the next day, like some judge says, and now you have to get married, that would be a really, really awkward wedding, right? right. <laughs> and that, 
that's like part of this is like, remember that this whole thing takes less than 12 weeks, that in the space of that 12 weeks, they're growing, they're recruiting people, the product is taking off and they want to kill each other. And then they have to join forces. So is it surprising that at the end of that, they have two CEO coups and all of this other stuff happened? Not really, because uh, this is actually like, I, I think I appreciate more this line that Elon said during my interview, because I asked him about this. I said, you know, what about this? And he said, he like waved his hand. He's like, there's always drama at startups. And it was like this very, like, I think I only really appreciate it right now, like what his comment meant, where he like waves his hand and it was like, there's always drama at startups. I think, yeah. I think he's onto something there in the sense that like, if you're in this kind of pressure cooker environment, what else would you expect? It's not going to be neat and tidy. It's never going to be neat and tidy. Yeah. They're at their throats for so yeah. long and then just needing to switch on a dime like that. Right. And as part of that post coup, some of the next steps were putting in charge Peter Thiel on an interim basis at first. And then as the core CEO, you speak about this a bit in the book, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on the implications of the VC movement going away from that executive experience, like the MBA type that it was in the past, and into more of the technical founder mentality, backing the people who started the companies. Yeah. And I think if if people were thinking about like what what is the lasting legacy, you know, as we come up on time, like what is the lasting legacy of this period of of the internet and of internet history and of PayPal, like one of the big shifts, and it is it is partially inaugurated by this group of people, is that the founder of a company is somebody that you can grow with. Meaning, you know, it used to be the case, and this is sort of, there's famous moments in Silicon Valley history where the founder was this sort of crazy person. And then you would bring in somebody who like knew how to wear a suit and knew how to communicate with other executives and knew how to talk to a board and knew how to talk to Wall Street. And that was one conception of how these businesses were run is that you get the first breakout success and then you bring in the adult, right? The adults in the room model. And I, I had long conversations with, with, uh, about this uh, on this subject with both Elon and with David Sachs in particular. And he, and the way David Sachs described, it, he said, you know, this is really when the, when, Silicon Valley moved away from what he called like the Scully model, right? Of like replace Steve Jobs with, with Scully. Yeah. He said, because we finally, we had seen what happened when they tried to bring in quote unquote executive experience over us. And we had seen that that didn't work at Yahoo. It didn't really work in other places. And we were able to restore our confidence to know like you can back an entrepreneur and then grow with them. And, you know, I think probably one of the more famous examples is obviously Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook you know, he has the support of, he, he is supported throughout ups and downs. Right. And, and I think that wasn't true in eras past with these sorts of companies. And so part of what happens in this, in this example of PayPal is when the company goes public, its CEO is Peter Thiel, who is also a founder. Its CTO is Max Levchin, who is also a founder. Most of the people on the, the kind of the list of executives for the SEC documents are very young and have been with the company for a while. And the lawyers apparently had actually told them like, hey, you should, I should get some more gray hairs to make to balance this out. And they looked at them and said, no, like, we're not going to do that. We, we know who built this company. We're going to go public with these people. And so I think there is a profound shift in that direction. I'm not sure, by the way, that like there's lessons necessarily to be gained for that because there are also a number of people at PayPal who, who did have gray hair and who came in with experience, but did a fantastic job. I think the broader point is it showed all of these people who went on to invest in companies that your founder, this is the way Elon put it in the book, the quotes in the book, it's this big block quote, I actually set it out as a block quote because I wanted people to see it. He said, the founder may be erratic and they may be unconventional, but they are a force, they're a creative force. And it was actually like what led me to call the book Founders. Um, I was like, I had a bunch of titles that were really bad before the founders. Right. And and I, I settled on it because I remember like reading that quote, reading it over and over again. I remember thinking, you know, this is not just like a title. It's not just something that like, adjust what equity you get. It is actually a mindset. It is a way of thinking about business that is qualitatively different than being a CEO. And I think there are people who are who are built to be founders and they're not always going to be the best like, you know, day-to-day -day management executives, but they are the creative forces behind their companies. And I hope that the the book itself captures some of how they think. Yeah, and I think many of those founders are the only ones who could take the companies at times 
to that zero to one step, as Peter Thiel says. Maybe the hired CEO can take a company from one to 100, but backing these founders with Mark Zuckerberg, the Google founders, Apple, bringing back Steve Jobs, many of the most successful businesses benefited from backing the technical founder. That's right. So I want to wrap up here with where people can find your book and one final lesson or takeaway that you hope people get from reading your book, imparting from your writing. Yeah. Well, it's called The Founders. You can find it, you know, bookstores, Amazon, Audible, Kindle, all the things. Um, And I hope people check it out. You know, I put a lot into it and it seems to be resonating with people. And I think it'll show you a side of some of the people who are covered in the news that you don't know, right? Because my story is not about Elon and Twitter. Uh, It's not about contemporary politics. It is about 1998 to 2002, which is a very different time in in our country's history and in the history of Silicon Valley. So I hope people check it out. A final lesson, you know, I think one of the things, here's a, here's a good one, actually, it relates to the, to the comment I just made. One of the things that surprised me is how widely read all of these people were. Um, it's really interesting because you wouldn't know that right away because look, they're running multi-million dollar businesses and they have busy lives and they're engaged in a million things. But early in their lives and, and even now, like they read an awful lot. Like, and I'm talking like like well-versed, quotable things from a range of sources, whether that is Russian literature or the Bible. And I was surprised by that, you know, and maybe I'm wrong to be surprised. Maybe I was like prejudiced in some weird way. And I like thought <laughs> that they were just writing code and building companies. But it was interesting to me to learn just like the sheer range of books and sources that somebody like a Peter or an Elon or a Max like would reference in common conversation. Like they draw something from someplace, put the quote in and you're like, that's from some play from the mid 20th century. Like how did you know? (laughs) And then you find out like they love it. Right. And so I think that's like actually kind of important because we're in an era where like it's more tempting to watch a short YouTube video or TikTok video than to sit down with a book. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not like, I'm not talking about this because I write books, though obviously I have some self-interest in the success of that technology. But but I'm sort of saying like, if you look to the sources of how these people learn, one important way that I came to understand is just how deeply read they are and how widely read they are, that it's like literature and everything. It's not just like technical books. Um, so maybe that's the lesson. Read more. <laughs> so much value to being a lifelong learner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy to have you join the podcast, Jimmy, and I recommended the book to many friends already. I hope more people listen to this conversation and are motivated to go grab a copy, like you said, read instead of surf the web. And or do, do both. I mean, it, do both. Clear, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Moderation is good. <laughs> Moderation yeah. is very good. Yeah. Yeah. But I hope uh, readers and listeners are able to take away some of the key lessons from the book in this conversation and then relay that in their own entrepreneurial and life journeys. Awesome. Well, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate that.